There is a power in the word, and we learned last week in particular there is power in the word preach. I think sometimes we maybe get the wrong idea about the word of God as almost superstitiously and magically as though you just open it and it does things. The word has got to be preached must be explained. What we're explaining here is the very mind of God. And 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us we, as believers in Christ, have the mind of Christ. So we can understand these things that because of sin, before Christ we could not. Will you then do me a great uh, privilege and honor of going before the throne of grace and praying to our God that he would bring down fire to this offering and light it up and that this morning the word of God would be preached in such a way with great fervor not only from the instrument but the receiver and that the fire would not be not only here in this altar but there in your own hearts just like the road of Emmaus where it says, we're not our hearts burning within. Will you pray that that would be true and so with your heart and my mouth and together we would make this morning a real act of worship? Let's pray. You pray. Lord, I'm just simply a a vessel, Lord, to do what you will and to serve you and to, Lord, serve these people. And I pray to your Father that uh, we would look to your word like food, like starving people who are unsatisfied, dissatisfied with the, the meals that the world is offering and giving and all that they're preparing for us to receive and eat and partake in that we would have a holy dissatisfaction with what they're offering and we would come to the table lord and receive what you have lord i offer to you lord this offering of just preaching your word and i put it on the altar and i pray that you would light it with fire the very fire of the holy spirit who can take these words and bring them into our hearts and make us more like Christ. Pray that this is not some type of intellectual exercise of academia that we just gain some knowledge. And if the Spirit doesn't attend that knowledge, it will merely be for the puffing up of our own lives. Maybe to be puffed up before our families or our spouses or others. What a gross act pray you'd keep us from that. May this be a truly an act of worship here this morning. We pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we love, who is our Lord, who is our Savior. And we find all riches and all delight. Amen. We're in Romans 10, and we're going to finish chapter 10 this morning as the Lord wills. And uh, this is a really exciting 
And and I want to tell you that this is going to be a major, massive piece to propel us into chapter 11. Chapter 11 is, is really critical. Very, very important. And there's going to be a lot of things there to, I think, put... It's like we're building this... this Paul has been building this puzzle for us, and there's this final little piece here to help us understand how Israel fits in all of this. What are we to do with Israel? And it's a very important question, I think, because Israel has such a history. Because God is the one that chose her. God's the one that started this whole deal with Israel. And I think if you don't answer that, then you're left with a big blank space, a big question mark, that you have to say, why did you do that, Lord? Why did you start Israel, spend 2,000 years with her, and then drop her off? What happened? Why is that? What's that all about? And we're really going to get into that next week. One of the most difficult things to do as we turn our attention to this passage, verses 18 through 21 of Romans 10, one of the most difficult things to do is to get someone to admit he is wrong. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe, you know, you don't have to look very far. I, I, I can be so... In fact, I, I think that the... Uh, I probably spent a whole lot of moments the first year of our marriage really struggling with that with myself, going, why can't I just admit that I'm wrong. I remember uh, watching a TV show as a youngster in, in the home, and, and the main character just w- could mouth the words, you know, I was rrr, you know, he w- would say, or I'm sir, you know, couldn't say sorry. Now that's funny with little things, but don't you agree that it's catastrophic with the biggest thing of all, your salvation? And it's what keeps a person from the kingdom of God being able to admit you're wrong before God. Being able to admit, you know what? My way is not working. My way is falling short. My life is falling short. My glory lacks luster. It's corrupt. So imagine missing the biggest thing, your salvation, heaven, eternity, the kingdom of God. Now with that thought, make sure that you're there in Romans 10. Turn there and let's get right into our study here. Now Paul's he's trying to show Israel that when she rejected the gospel, two things were happening together. Now follow this here. God's plan and her stubbornness. Those two things were happening. Her willful ignorance, if you will. Her resistance, if you will. She was resisting. And those two things always come together when a person rejects the gospel. Do you understand that? And I know that's difficult to sometimes wrap yourself around. The holy, omniscient, sovereign plan of God to save whom he wants to save and the willful stubbornness of unbelievers to not believe that gospel. And I think sometimes we tend to run to one side or the other. And if we run to the side of the sovereignty of God, we tend to have almost a cold look at evangelism. 
We tend to think to ourselves, well, God saves whom he wants to save, and if that person doesn't come to know the Lord, well, I guess they weren't chosen too bad. And I want you to see and know that that's wrong. Romans 10.1, what does Paul say? Man, my heart is that these people would be saved. I want to see them come to know the Lord. It pains me that they're unbelieving. And then there's the other side. And there are people that run to the stubbornness and the, and the uh, willful ignorance and the willful resistance. And if we don't hold on and understand the sovereignty of God and you run to this side over here, you might be tempted to think to yourself, if I could just get that person to stop being so willfully stubborn about this whole deal. And you maybe even might say to yourself, why does that person, why are they like a mule? I mean, can't they just see that this is the truth and can't they just stop resisting? And the answer to that is, well, of course not. Because it takes a sovereign, holy, omnipotent power to break them from their sins, open their eyes, cause them to see that they need Christ and cause true repentance. And these two things, they go together and they hang right there on the balances of of God's economy and how God works. And we have to let them do that. And so these two things come, always come together when a person rejects the gospel. God has chosen all who will believe, listen, and all who reject are responsible for not believing. They willfully don't believe, right? Let me say it in a different way. There are no passive people in salvation. None. No such thing. You actively believe or you actively don't believe. And there's no such thing as just kind of sitting on the fence and just kind of going, shrugging, you know, kind of the shrug of the shoulders. And when that unbeliever is not believing, it is always willful ignorance. It is always willful stubbornness. No passive people. Now, in order to prove to her that she is rejecting a gospel, that God has truly given Paul to preach... Paul does the only thing that I believe you could do in reaching a Jew. And it is the only thing. In fact, if you want to have evangelism to a Jewish person, you better learn and know your Old Testament. Because that's what he does. He just he quotes the Old Testament. Now first, notice in chapter 10, he quotes Deuteronomy from Deuteronomy 30. And he does that in verses 6 through 8. Notice then, in verse 11, Isaiah 28, 16. And then in verse 13, he moves to Joel 2, 32. And then in verse 15, Isaiah 52, 7. And then in verse 16, Isaiah 53, 1. And he's going all over the place, isn't he? But he's doing it because of what he said in verse 1. I really want to reach this Jewish person. I want them to know Christ. In other words, Israel, I'm not giving you anything new here. This is nothing new. You should know this stuff. It's from the Old Testament. And he tells us also, the gospel comes from the Old Testament. You know what, Israel? What you're doing also was seen right there in the Old Testament. In other words, not only does the gospel come from the Old Testament, but the very actions of Israel at this very time were spoken of back in the Old Testament. And Paul's trying to show them, guys, you're predictable. 
God knew this would be this way, and He's telling, He told us that you would be this way. Open your eyes and see. In other words, let me say it a different way. Israel had a Bible understanding problem. She had it, but just didn't, what? Get it. She missed the point of it. She missed the Messiah from it. And like we saw there in Romans 9-33, like it says there, she stumbled over the stumbling stone and over the rock of what? Offense. Who's that? Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus told her that that was her problem. If she would have just listened in John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Isn't that always the issue, huh? You think. You think. Jesus says, it is these that testify about me. In other words, your problem isn't Bible study. Your problem is Bible vision. Your problem is Bible illumination, Bible clarity. And what do they miss? They didn't see Jesus in the Old Testament, did they? And they didn't see themselves rightly in the Old Testament. And so it's almost like he's trying to show them, look, look at the history. Look at the pattern. Look at how you always did this, Israel. Always. You were always missing the main point, the big picture. They miss the Savior. They miss the Christ. And and that's the way it is for all unbelievers. They don't know what to do with Jesus Christ. And they, I mean, where does he fit? I mean, we've got the Bible. we got the ritual. we got the routine. we got the morality stuff. we got the try real hard attitude. we got that. we got the be committed thing. Yeah, but you miss Christ. He's the whole point. He's the whole point. And this is what really grieves my heart to see. You know, sometimes you'll see... Uh, people that you kind of come on one side or the other. Sometimes you see people that are just, just don't go to church. Or they come sporadically. And you think to yourselves, well, what's, my, what's our message to them? Still Christ, right? Don't just... I mean, we're tempted to say, well, you need to come to church more. Is that really the issue? Is really attendance the issue? I mean, we have like a little hall monitor or a little attendance person back there going, all right, who's here? You know? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, obviously that's not the issue. The issue is what? Christ. Christ. The issue is not physicality. And sometimes we can run, sometimes we can even be right here in the midst of it. Every week, I'm so involved, I serve so much. Yeah, but... Is it a following hard, serving, desiring Christ? Oh yes, that person who doesn't come to church, they need to be here. But they need to be here for that for the right reason, don't they? To seek and know Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a little uh, analogy here. All analogies break down, so all right, take it for what it's worth. But I was thinking about this. It's, let's say I was an owner of a bank. Because I want to show you that how the difficulty that Israel is having in hearing this gospel message that Paul is preaching here. Let's say I was an owner of a bank, and let's say as a 
It's a bank that had a rich family history for over 200 years. Run by the family for 200 years. And they had impeccable integrity. Or maybe they had a motto that went something like this, you know, keep it in the family, all family, all the time, right? And they could point to, you know, the aunts and uncles that have worked in this business and, and, and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents. And they're just known for this. And they all worked at it. And then... Uh, you come across this person and you're about to, you know, you, you come to this bank and you're about to give me 100000 to hold in the bank. And maybe we're even going to help you turn some of that, you know, into stocks. It's, your, it's for your retirement. So you have this massive investment. And then you find out one of the brothers doesn't work here. Every single brother, every single family member has always worked here. Has always given themselves to this. Where is this brother? No one says. Can't get a word out of anyone in the family about why the brother doesn't work here. How do you feel about making the investment now? You pause for a moment, don't you? You say, yeah. I think a foolish person would say, yeah, no, no big deal. Not a big deal. Now, listen. Here's, here's the view. They're looking at this, the Israel, and they're going... Family's not together. Paul, you brought this gospel, and you know what you did? You did this. We went fractured. We kind of went all went all over the place. And there was even a scattering. And all of a sudden now Israel is not together. This gospel message can't be right. How is this person going to make this investment? You're calling me to make an investment of my, of my whole life? And yet Israel... It's not a family anymore. There's going to be a pause. The reason why I say that is because I think we maybe don't think like an Israelite, like a Jew, as we should. Family is, the message he brings seems to be fracturing. And so here's Paul. He's a, he himself is a Jew. He's preaching to the Jews of the nation that has always had God's word, God's message. God revealed himself to this nation alone. Amos 3.2. He's claiming that God has given him the gospel that they must believe in order to be saved. Some Jews believed it, but most haven't. So does it make you pause if you're a Jew? Sure. You're not sure you're going in. You're not sure you're going to make that the investment of your life. Receive this message. fact it's even worse than that analogy you have many brothers and they've turned completely turned completely on and they're trying to tell you don't go in there don't do it so Paul has to explain Paul's got to defend and that's what he does that's what Romans 9 through 11 is this is how it sounds to them. God worked through Israel for 2,000 years, right? Then he sent them the gospel. They didn't believe, so now he's not working through them anymore. What's Israel going to say? Israel's going to say, I don't believe it. Prove it. So Paul does. First thing that Paul does to prove it is he shows them that Israel's rejection of the gospel fits right with God's plan. 
That's chapter 9. Now watch this. He says, you've got to show them that it fits with God's plan. Show them the sovereignty of God. Then he does the second thing. Show them that it is their fault. That it's all their fault. Show them that they rejected God by rejecting his gospel. Show them that God is still the same God. He's still the same God. He's still working in the same way. But the problem is, is that you're not believing. What's that mean to you and me? You say, I'm not Jewish. What's it mean to you and me? I'll tell you this. Salvation is both a a work of God's sovereign hand to choose His own, and it is also a responsibility to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, let's raise them backwards. The fact that Israel did not believe, the fact that Israel refused Jesus Christ, doesn't mean that God is not sovereign anymore, does it? Right? I mean, that's that's a pretty plain thing. It means that God is still sovereign. And in fact, God demonstrates the sovereignty in in, in history. Listen to this. By hardening unbelievers and even keeping them from Him. You say, why? How does that work? Well, we learned that in Romans 9. The reason why is for His own glory. So these two chapters have been incredibly deep. I mean, we've gone way high and deep into truths about God that leave us no better than Job after God spoke to him. We see that God is sovereign and in control of all of these things, and we see that Israel is responsible. And uh, we should be we should respond like Job after God spoke to him and when he said, I know that you, O oh God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. That's what hearing the gospel and truly receiving it does. I see... You see how you work with Job? I see that you're completely sovereign, O Lord. And it is because of that sovereignty. It's because that I see that your purpose will never fail. And that I can't go around questioning you in what you do and how you do it and how you work and how you brought this to us. I repent. And I come to you that way. So chapter 9 says God's rejected you. Chapter 10 says here's why. In other words, this is so helpful for me. God's answers are reasonable. They don't just end with, well, because God is sovereign, because that's his plan, that's his will, he chose it to be that way, that's that. Now I want you to know they could end that way. If the Lord wanted it to be, they could end that way, because he truly is that, isn't he? But he's communicating to us. And he wants us to know. And he wants us to understand. And listen, beloved. It's always like this. There's there's more. An unbeliever won't be judged on the basis of the fact that he or she wasn't chosen. You understand that? He'll be judged on this basis. Did you believe gospel? He'll be judged on this basis. 
who is paying for your sins? You'll be judged on this basis. What about your sin? And what about God's glory? What have you done with that? Now, what's Israel's state here? We see Israel as a whole, as a whole nation, and she's ignorant. And that's what chapter 10 is, is saying. That's why she didn't believe. Here she is not believed. And he, Paul says, you refuse to believe. You live in this spiritual ignorance. She just refused to turn to to God through Christ. And by ignorant, we mean the knowledge was right there, but she just refused to turn to it. Ever run across someone so stubborn that they just refuse to look at something? You know? That's Israel. Just refuse. Here it is. Won't you look at it? Won't you see it? It's true. Nope. Not going to do it. You can't make me. And that's Israel. Now, she just didn't get it. Now, what didn't she get? Specifically, six blind spots that kept her out of the kingdom. Six things that she just wouldn't see. Number one, she didn't have an understanding of righteousness. She just was not willing to see the very righteousness of God and hold it up and see how holy God was. And she was not willing to admit or receive or believe that her own righteousness was corrupt. That it was not good enough to get her in. Secondly, she didn't have an understanding of Christ. She was unwilling to see that Christ provided for her to bring an end to her system that needed to end. Thirdly, she didn't have an understanding of faith. and She didn't see the critical need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and confess Him as Lord, as Savior. She thought she could go way up high and reach and and go way down low and really, through her own efforts, get to where she needed to get to where God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Apart from faith in Christ, God will not say that. Fourth, she didn't have an understanding of mercy in verses 11 through 13. And we learned this and we saw this, that God's mercy spread wide. It was beyond the Jews. And fifth, that she didn't have an understanding of preaching. And that's verses 14 through 17. Now let's look at verses 14 and 17. And we'll make a transition into our study for this morning. Starting in verse 11, Paul makes this point. He says, anyone can be a believer. The gospel is for anyone. And that's very important for us to receive. Very important because lest we be like the Jews who looked at certain people and said, oh, they can't be saved. You know how that is. You have that uncle. You have that cousin. You think to yourself, oh, can't see that happening. The Lord can save anybody. You know how I can prove it? Because if you're a Christian, he saved you, right? He saved me. The gospel is for anyone. Verse 11. Notice verse 12. Whoever believes. 
No distinction, he says, for all who call on him. There, verse 12. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Israel limited God's mercy to just them. Hated the Gentiles. Hated all non-Jews. And Paul says, look, mercy of God has gone beyond what you could imagine or think or, or want to believe that God is. And we learn and we remember the illustration of Jonah. So how practically does any person, whether Jew or Greek, get saved? Real simple. And Paul lays out this chain, right? How does it happen? Verses 14 through 17. Well, the first thing he, he does, he gives is the end part here, okay? When a person cries out, when they call on God to save them through Jesus Christ, they've arrived at the place where they actually think they're going to hell, that they're sinking, right? And they're in trouble with him. That's the first place. Or that's that, that, that's the end. You finally cry out. But you don't call out to him like that unless you what? Believe. See it there, verse 14? Unless there is conviction about the truth. So he says, there's got to be a crying out, but there also has to be a believing. A conviction. But then he goes further. You don't have that conviction unless you hear the right message, right? And we said last time that there's a specific kind of hearing here that he's talking about. A specific hearing that saves all people here with the ears attached to the head. And only, but only the ones that, that are saved, they're, they're the only ones that hear with the ears of the, of the heart. Where's the message coming from that will save you? A preacher. How does that preacher get to you? God sends him. And so we made the point that God saves through preaching. Through preaching. Now I know, because I heard it from some of you, <laughs> that there are some of you that are that had thought this last week, wait a minute. Are you saying that we need the that God's plan is to bring people to the higher gun? And uh, you know they gotta be sitting in a seat and they gotta come and hear a public sermon? And that's how they get saved. Be careful. Paul's not saying that here. What Paul is saying is that God's means to save people is through preaching, but he is not saying that it has got to be in some public setting like this. Understand. I mean, you, you could just see you, you, the direct method is through the preaching, but indirectly, you understand everybody comes to Christ because somewhere there was somebody that preached and explained a text that you took, right? I mean, I could, you could trace every gospel that has been received through preaching. Every one. In other words, and I know, you know, you, you, you sometimes you say, well, I know, a, I know a guy who's reading his Bible and just God saved him. Well, the person was not some blank slate that just woke up some morning and decided to read their Bible and, and then all of a sudden God saved them. There are a series of events and things that happened prior to that. And I can tell you on the, with the authority on the basis of Romans 10, God used the preaching of somebody to save them. God saves through preaching. The important message though to the Jews was this. Guys, God didn't just send preachers to you. Right? Guess where who whom he sent them to? Oh. 
And that's what he was telling them. God sends the preacher. And so we made the point that people get saved because God in his sovereign will sends preachers to preach the gospel. And it is a message, notice verse 17, about Christ. Literally a speech about Christ. That's the word there, rhema, for, for the word word. Word of Christ. Speech. A, 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 uh, a crafted, uh, put together gospel message about the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from the word of God. So Paul's point is that God sends preachers with that message to both Jews and Greeks, and that's how all people get saved. That's part of the reason why, I've told you this before, and you've heard me say this, I, I will say, invariably talking to somebody who says they're a Christian, I'll ask them, who shared the gospel with you? Recently I had asked that question to a person, and uh, it was an interesting response. Because there wasn't a lot of clarity on that. But it's very important because you got to know what message did you receive, right? You can't just say, I'm saved, and go, oh, well, he said he's saved. we got to know what message did you hear? What is it? Where did you get it from? How did the Lord work in your life? To open your eyes to see. Now, the message is a worldwide message. Obviously, if if God is sending preachers everywhere, and that's his point here, it's a worldwide message, and the key is hearing it. The key is, we, we made this point last week, hearing Christ. Not only just the message, but Christ himself in that message so that you would respond to him. It's heeding or obeying him. You have to hear him. Jesus said in Luke 6.27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now listen to that. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now what's he mean by that? He's given a message to lots of people, and to all these people he's saying, I'm saying to the ones that hear this. I'm saying to a select group of you that actually are going to hear what I'm saying. Love your enemies. In other words, I'm giving you a command that you can only obey if you hear. And you can't hear him without the preacher who preaches the gospel that Paul's given in this letter. Now what Paul does next then is he he expects a question. And he does this a lot in Romans. He expects a challenge. So he asks a question that the Jew would challenge him with. And in that, he begins the final blind spot, the the last point of ignorance, prophecy. Or you could say the predictions of Scripture. They didn't have, point number six, an understanding of prophecy. They didn't get how prophecy worked. They didn't get how Scripture could could predict this very thing that they they were going through, the very thing that that was happening right here with Israel. So here's Israel. This is verses 18 through 21. They have this message of salvation. It's all about Christ. It's gone out in all the world. No barriers. Now watch this. What's the Jew going to say about that? He's going to question Paul. What's Paul going to do? He's going to show him three passages of prophecy to let him know that God already predicted that this would happen. But Israel... You still won't listen, will you? 
Israel still wouldn't hear him. Now, prophecy has always been a big part of Israel's history. God sent the prophets with messages of prophecy. The Old Testament is filled with prophecy about Israel's Messiah, about Israel's captivity, Israel's redemption, and so forth. All about our future. You know, we have uh, whole books, I mean, large sections. I mean, you start there uh, in Isaiah, and you go all the way to the end, and you, you'll get a numerous amount of, I think it's like 17 books in the Old Testament are given directly to prophecy. And then you have large portions of other books that have prophecy in them. It's huge. And what Paul's going to show them is this. You didn't listen to it. You didn't see it. And you never do. Paul then unmasks her ignorance by laying out three inexcusable truths. And by that I mean there's no excuse for not knowing or understanding these prophecies. No excuse for not receiving the truth. And with each one, there's a question that is to be answered. So let's look at the first one. First prophecy, that is, that the gospel would be available to all. That the gospel would be available to all. Verse 18. He says, But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Now that is Psalm 19.4. Those of you who are very familiar with Psalm 19, you know it's basically a psalm about general revelation in the first part, and then special revelation in the second part. Those are big words that basically mean God revealing himself through creation, generally to all people. In other words, you see creation, and you know there's a God. And then God revealing himself specifically through the the word of God, through the Old Testament. Specifically to Israel. Israel had the law of the Lord. Israel had specific statements about God and who he is. You can learn a lot about God by looking at trees and mountains and such forth. But you learn more by what? Studying scripture, right? And that's the point. So here's the question to Israel. Have you heard the gospel? Have you heard the gospel? And Israel's kind of bringing this up here, themselves even. I mean, here you could say it this way. I mean, have they really heard the gospel? I mean, can we honestly hold them accountable and responsible for something they've never heard? Have you used that argument? You know, this age-old argument. you got the tribe that's out there and somewhere in southern somewhere, and they haven't heard, right? And you're saying to yourself, poor people, I mean, can, we, can, can God really hold them accountable? And there, that's, a, that's an argument that a lot of unbelievers use. And so the question is, have you heard the gospel? Look at how Paul says it. He says, but I say, surely they've never heard, have they? The question implies a negative answer. No, they most certainly have heard. It's kind of a funny way the way they the way they use their their grammar, but that it's yeah. You think like a, a Greek there? They pile up their little negatives to try and put emphasis here. Okay, they have. Look at what Paul says. Indeed, they have. 
They certainly have. Then Paul quotes Psalm 19.4, an incredible passage to use. Now I mentioned to you, Psalm 19.4 is all about general revelation and special revelation. This particular verse 4 is a part of the general revelation part. And the whole point of Psalm 19.4 is, listen to this, that the whole world has heard God. All of it. Verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. What work? Creation. Notice the heavens are telling and the expanse is declaring all, what's that? It's preaching. It's basically preaching. In other words, creation preaches a message. Have you heard her mess, the message of creation? It's natural revelation. Creation talks, it speaks, it has a message. Verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. And then verse 4, their line, literally their sound, has gone out through all the earth. And their utterances to the end of the world. In other words, creation has a message that the whole world has heard. That is the text that Paul uses to make his point. It's the text he uses to say that Romans 10.18 teaches that the gospel has gone out into all the earth, listen, and the whole world has heard it. You say, um, but how can Paul say that the whole world has heard the gospel? I mean, have they really? Have we actually accomplished Acts 1 8 or Matthew 28? When he said, Go in all the world, preach the gospel to the whole world? Is Paul telling us at this point in time, check, we've done that? That's a good question, I think. I mean, it's a good question, but I want you to... Let's just for a moment suppose that Paul is right. And that the gospel really has gone out into the whole, whole world. If it really has, and if they really have that, therefore, the whole world heard the gospel, then he'd have an argument with Israel, wouldn't he? He could say, you guys have heard the gospel. In other words, you're responsible for this. What's his point? Here's what I really, what I believe his point is. I'm going to tell it to you and then I'm going to support it with some more scripture. I believe what he's telling us is this. It's not so much that the gospel has gone to every single person who lives and has ever lived. His point is this. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is available to the whole world. It used to be available only to Jew. Now it is available to all. Now listen. Available to Jew, God revealed himself to the Jew, right? This is the whole point. Ephesians 2. This is why Paul said what he said in Ephesians 2. The barrier has been broken. The wall is done. The gospel, the blood of Christ, it says there, has gone. This is Colossians. Uh, oh, great verse. Just, uh, just kind of coming to me here. L- l- listen to this. And we're about to study Colossians in the... Uh, in flock. 
He basically says the same thing. Colossians 1. He says in verse 22, that Jesus Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. If indeed, verse 23, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Everyone's heard it, in other words. So what do you mean by that? I believe what's meant by that is that it is available to all now. All. I mean, Israel was to take the gospel to the nations. And that didn't really happen too well, the Old Testament. Now God has made it that the gospel would be available to all. And so really, what we have here is this massive responsibility and accountability to believe it. Psalm 19.4 says, God's speech has been heard throughout the whole world. The speech is talking about its its creation. Romans 10.18 says basically the same thing. It's talking about the gospel. And I've got to tell you, if it really is like Paul seems to be saying, this really is the answer to how are those people in the jungles and tribes of way far countries going to hear this message. It really is the answer. Look, it is available. It is available. And what Psalm 19 then is to Paul here is an analogy. Just as God spoke general revelation there, today he's spoken specifically through the gospel. And it has gone out. Now in a sense, Paul's already told us this. Romans 1, all men are without excuse. Why? Because since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without what? Excuse. Same thing. In other words, you have no excuse for not believing the gospel. Again, you and I are going to be tempted to say, oh, good, well then then why preach, right? There's no excuse. It's all out there. No, no, no. We're the Lord's vehicles. We're his instruments to take the gospel out. This is John 1 9. Jesus, actually, this was said. There, there was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Now, how did Jesus do that? Every man has been enlightened. Romans 10, the words of the preacher preaching the gospel has gone into the whole world. John 1, every man has been enlightened. Saying basically the same thing. Acts 1.8, Jesus called the apostles to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And these passages make it seem like they did that very thing. Now listen. Again, it's better if you understand this as being exposure more than anything. In other words, the availability of it. And so we see in Acts, the walls breaking down in Jerusalem gospels going out. And we see in Samaria the gospel going out. And the Jews had a hard time, remember that in Acts 10 and 11 and they were thinking to themselves 
how could the gospel be a Gentile thing? And, and they had to remember Acts 1.8. But Jesus said it needed to do this. And they had to know that this is not just a Jewish thing. And that's why they said there in, in Acts 11.18, well, that God has granted repentance to the Gentiles as well that leads to life. I'll give you another passage. Colossians 1.5, the gospel, verse 6, which has come to you just as in all the world. The gospel has come to all the world and it is producing fruit. What's it all mean? I, I believe it means that it's available to the whole world, to Jews and Greeks. And that covers what? Everybody. Is that not what he's been saying? Romans 10, verse 12. No distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. That's what he's trying to tell them. Look, it's available to all. And so what Paul is doing is showing them that just... Psalm 19.4, the gospel has gone out into the whole world, all of her. There's, there's not a problem with the physical ears. Any person can find the truth in the world that's available. But availability is not enough. And here is Israel. She has this passage. and They're ignorant of the gospel, and it's their fault because it's available. But there's more, Number two, point number two. The gospel would not be too difficult to understand by any. Verses 19 through 20. Take a look at these verses. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation, by a nation without understanding will I anger you. And then verse 20, and Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. First, Psalm 19.4, now he turns to Deuteronomy 32. This is verse 21. Now here's the second question. First question was, have you heard the gospel? Answer, Paul answered it already. Yes. Second question, have you understood the gospel? What's the answer? Yes. That's Paul's answer here. He realized Israel had understood the gospel. It's not so much that Israel can't figure out on the surface what Paul is saying. They understand that Paul is proclaiming Christ as Lord and Savior. They get that. They're just not buying it. See? They understand that's what Paul is saying. It's not so much that the unbeliever can't understand the gospel at a certain level. They just don't like hearing the fact that you're calling me to repentance. It's like the gal that I talked to on the phone who, upon hearing the gospel over and over and over again, finally said, I don't want it. And I had the probe questions, is it, Why? And it wasn't because she said, oh, I I get what you're saying. It's just too hard. It's just too hard. You want me to give up my whole life for this? Yeah, I think you do understand what I'm saying. Yeah. 
By the way, I want you to, but it's only because our Lord wants you to more. (laughs) I'm very minuscule. He's the real object. Look at verse 19. Surely Israel did not know, did they? He again assumes a no that they did know. Okay, answer. They knew. How could you support that, Paul? Paul says, because their Old Testament predicted that God would save this way. It predicted the gospel message would go beyond the Jew, and it even predicted that they would get ticked off about it, and that they would be jealous about that. See, You say it did? Yeah, where? Where did it, where did it say that? Well, who's, who's Paul going to quote first? See that word first? That's an important word. Well, let's look at Moses first. Why? Because Moses is the top for the, for the Jew, right? You, you, use the, you throw around the word Moses, and you're throwing your weight around. You're really throwing some serious authority. He was their man. What's he say? Deuteronomy 32. What Moses say? He said a people would come to the Lord that were not Jewish and would make Israel jealous. you got to understand the context to see just where the Lord was going here. Verse 5, Israel had acted corruptly toward God. Deuteronomy 32.5 So God said that they're not my children. They're a perverse and crooked generation. God started you off well, but then you grew fat, verse 15 says, which is another way of saying he forsook Israel forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. And that's Deuteronomy 32.15. And all this, by the way, is prophecy. It's the song of Moses. Moses is telling them, this is what's going to happen in the future. Now watch this here. Deuteronomy 32.16. Israel made God jealous with strange gods. Sacrifice, it says there, to demons to the newest and latest gods and forgot God who gave them birth. And so here it comes, verse 20, 21. They have made God jealous. The Lord says, with what is not God, they have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, you did this to me. So watch this. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. In other words, you made me jealous, so I'm going to make you jealous. How? By a not-nation, that's a literal, actual translation, by a not-nation, a nation who lacks understanding, it says. What kind of people are those? Gentiles. Remember Ephesians 2? Not my, a people that were not really a people? Remember Ephesians 4? A people that, uh, the Gentiles, they were darkened in their understanding, they didn't understand, they didn't get the Lord. They didn't get, you know, sin and what life was all about. God's going to save those kind of people. And it's going to make Israel jealous. Now Moses' prediction, his prophecy, is, is, is only coming true if what happens? What has to happen? Well, Gentiles have to be converted, don't they? And come to God through the gospel in Jesus Christ. And what Paul says is Deuteronomy 32 is happening right now. It's happening in your midst. 
He says, you should have known, Israel. It's not that difficult. It's right there in your Bible, the Old Testament. And this is the very truth even that Jesus was telling them. Matthew 21 and 22, he spoke of this. So it's, it's In 21, it was that parable where Jesus pictures a landowner who planted a vineyard. You remember this parable? And he, he planted this vineyard and uh, he rented it out to vine growers to take care of it. Harvest time approached and the owner sent uh, slaves to get some of the produce. You remember what the vine growers did? Well, they beat the slaves, didn't they? And they killed some of those slaves. And so the owner said, ah, I'll send my son. They'll take care of, of my son. And they killed the son too, didn't they? And they thought that they could take the inheritance from the owner. And Jesus posed this question to Israel. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Here's how Israel answered. Israel answered this way. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. Self-fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? Oh, he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And then in verse 43, it's almost as though Jesus said, Yeah, you understand, don't you? You got it. Yet you don't really get it because you think you're not attached to that type of thing. You think that there's no way that you can, first of all, be a wretch, and secondly, that God would bring you as a wretch to an end. (coughs) Jesus says in verse 43 of that parable, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. What people? Gentiles. And that makes, and that matches Deuteronomy 32, doesn't it? Moses prophesied this very thing would happen. He said, you're going to get angry when God brings Gentiles into the kingdom and saves them, he says. Now Paul wants to nail this thing, so he uses a second Old Testament passage here in this point. And this one's taken from Isaiah. Isaiah 65. 65, 1. This is verse 20. Look at look at there. Look at verse 20. Paul sets it up there. He says, and Isaiah is very bold. The bold means clear. It's a, it's a word that means plain or straight up. It doesn't mince words. I was Isaiah was very clear when he said, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And so here is Israel seeking after God but not finding him. And here is a people not seeking God, but what? Finding him. Paul says, Isaiah told you guys that would happen. Why didn't you guys believe him? It's not too difficult a prophecy to understand. What Paul is saying is that they should have seen that God prophesied that Israel would not believe and that the Gentiles would believe and that Israel would be brought to anger and jealousy. And boy, were they. Read the book of Acts and how they tried to... They, they successfully killed Stephen. Then they tried to kill Paul. They followed him all around. They stoned him, Acts 14 says. They thought they left him for dead. They thought he was dead. Paul gets up and goes to preach in the next city. Amazing stuff. And all of that just basically is fulfillment of Deuteronomy 32. Now notice one other thing here. And we'll use this thought to transition to the next and last point and bring this all to a conclusion here. Notice the Gentiles who didn't seek after God were what? What's it say? Found. Notice also that it says that God became 
manifest to a people that didn't ask for God to be their Savior. What's he telling us here? He's telling us that God saves by sovereign grace. That's why. So that leads us to the third point. This third prophecy, prophetical point. The gospel would be both grace and judgment for any. For the person, of course, who believed grace. For the person who did not, judgment. And what Israel could never, would never believe is that the gospel would be grace for the Gentile and judgment for her. She always viewed it the other way around. Grace for her, judgment for the Gentile. Finally, the Gentiles are going to get it. That was her, her belief system. But look at verse 21. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Israel's fault is going to be nailed shut and made clear here. So Paul, he continues with his Isaiah 65 quote. This is actually Isaiah 65 2. Other verses, verse 1, here's verse 2. Notice it says, but as for Israel, he says. Verse 1 says, Gentiles will believe. The people that didn't seek after God will be saved. What about Israel? Now here you're going to see God's grace and mercy. And you're also going to see judgment. Look at it. In other words, God is completely fair to judge Israel for not believing. Why? Because she had the gospel message. She heard it. She understood what it was generally all about. She understood the fact that she was refusing something that the scripture said that she would refuse. She understood all of that. And she understood that God stretched out his hand to her. But she refused. Now here's the third question. First question, have you heard the gospel? Yes. Second, have you understood the gospel? Yes. Third, okay then, have you obeyed the gospel? Sometimes I think we don't go far enough in evangelism. We're, we stop at those two. Have you heard it? Yeah, I heard it. Well, did you understand it? I understood it. Oh, great. Ask the next question. Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you done what it demands? Have you followed through with doing all that the gospel commands of you? Have you surrendered to the gospel? The answer for Israel is an obvious no. God is just to judge her. First, because sinners go to hell because of their sins and because they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. But second, because she's rejected God's grace. She's rejected God's mercy, God's love. I mean, God is so gracious. Will you notice here that it says... All the day long, continuously, all the time, I have stretched out my hands to you. I have stretched them out to give you, to offer you this. I have made the gospel available to you, and I have shown you, and I have been so gracious to you for 2,000 years. Over and over and over. By the way, read Isaiah 5, and you'll get a great perspective on 
both grace and judgment there and how this works and God's outstretched arm there speaks of it. His hands are outstretched. Fascinating study to look at them. To look into the Gospels and see all the places where Jesus reaches out his hands to heal or or to save. Fascinating study. All the Gospels were basically a revelation of this very thing. God came down to stretch out his hand and say, You believe in me, you can be saved. I came to save you. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. But you know, where is the supreme place where we see our Lord Jesus with outstretched hands? Cross. Indeed, God did stretch out his hands, didn't he? And yet you were a disobedient and obstinate people. There's supreme love and Israel rejected it. And here's our Lord then saying, you didn't pay attention to prophecy. I told you this would happen, but you didn't take my word seriously. You see, the Jew should have seen that all this was in his Bible and then realized that Jesus is the Messiah. And she, it says here, was was disobedient and obstinate. She ignored God's patience and mercy and kindness. Now notice too what they did when they when God stretched out his hands to save them with those two words, disobedient and obstinate. God commands us to obey the gospel, to repent of our sins, and trust Christ alone in obeying the gospel call, to abandon the self, and, and to purchase Christ, to gain Christ, to sell all and buy Jesus Christ. And she was disobedient to that. And it says she was obstinate, which is another word. Literally, the word means to speak out against. It's to, it's to stiffen up your neck. To dig in your heels and say, no. No. Let's bring this to a conclusion here. Why is Israel lost? This is the question that Paul has been answering now for two chapters. Why is Israel lost? Chapter 9, God's sovereign. It all fits with his sovereign plan. Chapter 10, because his hands were outstretched and she willfully became ignorant. She did the old monkey thing of see no evil hear no evil, speak no evil, thinking that she could just do all that, and she was okay. Not okay, right? Why is Israel lost? Look at all that she refused, all that she rejected. Verses 1 to 3, she rejected righteousness. The righteousness provided for her in Jesus Christ. She rejected, verse 4, Christ himself. She rejected faith she wouldn't believe. She wouldn't confess Christ. She rejected mercy. She, she was absolutely not going to take the fact that Gentiles can be saved. She rejected preaching. God sent her preachers to believe. She rejected prophecy. Where does that leave her? 
She's an obstinate people. And people who speak against God and His gospel. So the question now is this. Is this curtains for Israel? Is this it? All done. It's gotten so bad for you. That's it. Such a supreme question, I think. And I think why it's a really important question that we're going to learn in chapter 11 is by the time you get to the end of it, you realize we can be so similar to Israel, can't we? And it leaves us practically with this question, will God ever just say, I've had enough with you? I'm all done with you? Man, you fail too much. We see Israel's failure here, but can we get to a place where we fail too much? Oh, we really, we live off of God's grace, don't we? Is her rejection, Israel's rejection and failure permanent? Chapter 11 is going to tell us, answer that. And those questions are for you too, as I mentioned. And so I ask you this. Number one, have you heard the gospel? Secondly, have you understood the gospel? And thirdly, have you obeyed and surrendered to the gospel? Israel was like the modern day evolutionist. Modern day evolutionist says there is no God, that he doesn't exist, and he does it all in the face of overwhelming evidence that's stacked up, Romans 1 says, against him. And yet he refuses to look. That was Israel. She stands in her blindness. Chapter 10 unmasks her ignorance. Shows how ignorant she really is. How about you? She was unwilling to, unwilling to admit that she was wrong. What about you? May God grant you grace to do that very thing. And parents, tell your children, hold it out before them. What about you? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this message here in, in Romans. And Lord, uh, you know, I can try sometimes to couch things and say things to produce understanding, Lord. And I, my fear is, Father, that sometimes I muddle it up. But Father, your word is very clear. So clear, Lord. You have shown us. You have called us. We don't want to be like Israel. We don't want to hear this message and just go on willfully, stubbornly in our blindness. We thank you that for the Lord, for the Savior Jesus Christ, who has come to open our eyes. and It was a work of your grace to bring us to this place to, to believe, to repent and believe. And so we want to exalt Him. We want to magnify Him, Lord. We want it, these thoughts, to this, these truths, Lord, to lead us to the throne of grace that we might worship You for this great salvation that You have given, Lord. Your arms were outstretched. They reached down to us. We were found by You. You became manifest, as it says there, to us. Visible. Finally, we were able to see you and see our sins and see how precious Christ is. None of it was a work of ours, and it was all a work of yours, and we thank you for that. Now, Lord, 
stir up joy. We might survive and live and even joyfully uh, move by this truth. We pray for this in the name of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.